Let's take our Bible tonight to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verse 13 through 16. We're just pressing pause for this week in our Ecclesiastes study. And I wanted to have a little bit more time with that particular text. And uh, we're going to uh, study further on that next next week. But uh, this was a, a message that I think is valuable and needed for us. And so this, this text was on my mind. And, and so I, I want to bring out some things from this text that I think would be beneficial for us in our Christian life. And uh, the title of the message is Pass the Salt and Shine the Light. Two common sayings, Pass the Salt and Shine the Light. And this text comes to us in the midst of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so there's so much rich application for us from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and so let's look at this passage of Scripture here this evening. Notice in verse number 13 that Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city city set on a hill cannot be hid. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all that are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So we we hear those sayings, right? Pass the salt please, or shine the light, please. Uh, in those particular uh, statements, they, we, we use them because of the circumstances where we need them, right? Most often we say pass the salt at the kitchen table because that's what we need. If we're in the dark or needing to see something specific, we say shine the light over here. But I think it's interesting as you look at Jesus' teaching, he often uses common things to teach spiritual lessons. And I love that about the parables and about Uh, many of the metaphors and similes that he uses. And so he uses two commodities, salt and light, uh, to illustrate the influence of God's people in this world. Because Christians do indeed have influence, don't they? We are called to be an influence. But have you ever thought that maybe, well, Christian influence, does it really make a difference in the world? Perhaps we feel like it doesn't. Is living the biblical Christian life really making any difference? I was reading a, a illustration uh, that includes, it comes from Woodrow Wilson. He was the 28th president of the United States, and he wrote about a time when he was struck by the influence of a particular Christian. And he wrote, and he said this, he said, I was sitting in the barbershop when I became aware that a powerful influence had entered the room. A man had come in quietly upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut and sat in the chair next to me. Every word the man uttered showed to be a powerful interest, showed a powerful interest in the man who was serving him. Before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware that I had attended an evangelistic service because D.L. Moody was in the chair. I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect his visit had brought on the barber shop. They talked quietly. They did not know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts. And I felt as if I was leaving a place of worship. And we've probably all heard of D.L. Moody. He was an evangelist of many years ago, and uh, we may not agree with him on everything doctrinally, but God did use him, and he was a great influence uh, in many, many ways. And, and what I gather from that account is that a Christian may have influence by their character, by their testimony, by their words they speak, and not even realize the influence that they are having and impacting on others who are listening and watching. 
Now, I think it's easy for us as Christians to think that we have no influence on the world because we see darkness in our world. We see decay in our world. But it's simply not true that we don't have influence on the world around us uh, as Christians. Because when you're living a biblical Christian life, you are having an influence whether you recognize it or not. God is using you whether you recognize it or not. And so I want to point out in our text here today what Jesus teaches us about our influence through the metaphors he uses here. Notice with me, number one, I want us to see our worth as Christians. I want us to see our worth as Christians, our worth or our value. And notice with me three things about our worth. Firstly, is that we are a transformed people. As believers, we are a transformed people. You say, well, how are we transformed? Well, the answer is all wrapped up in one word, salvation. Salvation is a transformation. It's not just, um, it's not just some religious talk. Real salvation brings with it a real transformation to a person's life. And, and that happens by the grace of God. You see, it's an instant transformation when a person receives it. It is a conversion from darkness to light. It is a conversion from bondage in sin to freedom from sin and its penalty. It's a conversion from being known as a sinner or in the, uh, being seen as a sinner in the eyes of God to being a saint as the scripture describes us. It is a conversion from death unto life. There's so many aspects that, that we could look at within salvation, but salvation itself is a transformation. We think for a moment who we were before salvation and who the scriptures describe us to be before salvation. Coming through Ephesians last year, this is fresh in our mind, but we know that we were a spiritually dead person walking in darkness, headed for our own destruction. Ephesians 2 and verse 1 through 3 outlines this and describes it so vividly. Paul says to the Ephesians about their past state, he says, you were past tense, dead in sin, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As you dissect that passage... You see, it's a grim look at our depravity. It's a grim look at who we were as dead sinners in our depravity. It's a terrible but true reality of what we were before salvation. And But what we find here is the transformation, as Paul continues that text in verse 4 and verse 5. I love this transition in the text. In verse 4, he says, but God. That's a transition point, right? Paul says, you were all of this. But God, so the difference maker in our life, the transforming power in our life is God and His grace. But God, being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in sins, dead in our trespasses, what did He do for us? He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so that's the big picture of the transformation that's happened in the heart and life of a Christian. We were dead in sin, now we're made alive in Christ. And this is all due to God in His grace and mercy and love. It's a drastic difference. 
Now, what is it that made this transformation possible for us? We know the answer to that. It was Jesus Christ in his redemptive work through his death on the cross for sinners and his resurrection from the grave, conquering that great and dreadful enemy we know as death. Jesus is the one who has accomplished and brought this to us by means of the cross and by means of the resurrection. And so, by faith in Christ's gospel work, we're transformed instantly and eternally, and we see this transformation further. In Colossians 1.13, he says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. So, We were in the domain of darkness. Now we're in the kingdom of the beloved Son, which is Jesus. And so with this transformation, notice what else we see. Peter wrote with this in 2 Peter 1.4, he says that we as believers, by the grace of God, we have been partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Notice what he says there, that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Now, let me clarify that that does not mean that Christians somehow become gods or become equal with God in any way. What it does mean is that, uh, amazingly, we share in the nature of Christ in which we are made like unto Him through His Spirit and through the work of God. Now, when we think about the nature of God, what is God's nature? Well, we could look at all sorts of different aspects that are uh, communicable to, communicated to us. But one that sticks out in relation to our text is that God is light in 1 John 1, 5. That God is light. And so this is going to tie into what Jesus tells us in a moment, that we are the light of the world. So the point I'm making here is that we're a transformed people, is that God has made us, by His grace, peculiar. We're not like the rest of the world around us. We really are different. We really are different if we've been born again. We've been transformed supernaturally by the grace of God. But that brings us to letter B. Not only are we a transformed people, we are a valuable people. A valuable people. Now, notice this. Consider the metaphor Jesus is using. And this shows you the value of who we are in Christ. Think about the value of salt for a moment. You understand that what Jesus is talking about here, very highly coveted, elements in his day and time. The value of salt, especially in the ancient world. Salt was very precious and coveted. People fought over salt. (laughs) Imagine that. Fighting over salt. Roman soldiers received salt rations as part of their pay sometimes, and if they didn't get it, they would revolt. They would show great displeasure in that. uh, We think about salt, even today, it's in every home, isn't it? Every restaurant, it's in every, at every table. Now, Jesus says to his disciples, notice what he says to them. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Notice that that is present tense, and it's a personal tense. You are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say, you have salt for the earth. He says, you are salt. You are the salt of the earth. You know what he's showing us with this? He's showing us the value of what he's made us to be. Now understand, when I, think about, when I talk about us being valuable people, our value as salt is because of God's grace who has made us into this, not because of our own individual worth, as if we have it in and of ourselves. You must understand the undergirding, uh, uh, undergirding foundation to all of this 
is the grace of God. It's the grace of God. He has made us into the salt of the earth. That's a great truth to ponder upon. But notice also, let's think about the value of light. What would life be like without light? I mean, think about it. We're so blessed in this modern age, right, to have electricity. Imagine in here worshiping. We go turn all the lights off. Let's just sit here in the dark. We use the light to see. We use the light. It's, it's part of life, isn't it? Even in the ancient world it was. But you think about today. Imagine a home builder building a, a home for a family, and the home builder did not provide lights for the house. Had no wiring, no sockets to put the fixtures. And so he says, all right, it's ready, move in. They go in there, and there's no lights at all. I'm going to tell you, there would be a fuss, wouldn't there? We'd be all up in arms. Where's our lights? We've got to have light. It's a valuable thing. And so light is a must-have source to all of us. Light was one of the very first things created by God, wasn't it? Genesis chapter 1 and verse 3, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Isn't that fascinating? By the way, he created light before he ever created the things that give light, like the sun and the moon and the stars. And so he just speaks, and there it comes forth, light, because light is what the world needs. Light is valuable. And so we see light all throughout creation. We see it in the sun, the moon, the stars. We think about fire, how it gives light. The electricity that we have today, it gives light. Now, light in the days of Christ didn't come in the easy way of flipping on a switch, right? I'm so thankful we have that. Uh, No, light back then, it came in clay dishes with oil and wicks and and they had to get some fire and light it, right? So they carried it around. They had a little lamp that they would carry around. And so you think about the value of light to the people in Jesus' day. Think about the value of light even to us in our day. And notice what he says in verse 14. He says to his disciples and to really the audience there about Christians, you are the light of the world. You don't just have light, but you are the light of the world. We are a valuable commodity as light of the world and as salt, which brings me to letter C. Letter C. We see not only are we a transformed people, we're talking about the worth of Christians, not only are we a uh, valuable people, we are an influential people because of what light and salt do. We are an influential people. When you think about what is the ultimate purpose of salt and light, well, when Jesus says you're the salt of the world, It's communicating what salt does. What is the influence of salt? There's a lot of different influences of salt. I think I gave you a few in your notes. But think for a moment, salt, what does it do? It seasons. Salt makes food taste better, doesn't it? (laughs) Have you ever sat down to eat a meal, whether it's at a restaurant or even at home? You try a new recipe, and and, uh, you sit down to eat it, you take a bite, and the first thing you think of, man, it just needs some salt, right? Maybe God gave us salt because he knew. We weren't going to get it right every time. Uh, We need salt. Salt seasons. It makes things taste better. And and so we need salt in uh, in this world. Uh, I think a good parallel passage, and I'll just read it to you. Psalm 34 and verse 8, it kind of ties into salt and light. But David, writing there, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in him or trust in him. But I find it interesting. You can see a little parallel there. He says, Oh, taste salt, and see, light, that the Lord is good, that the Lord is good and blessed are those who take refuge in him. So salt seasons. But not only does salt season, salt also preserves. That's a, it has a preserving aspect to it. It helps preserve from corruption. Now, in ancient days, 
Many people used salt as a means of keeping their meat from spoiling, trying to keep foods to continue on as long as they could. Now, salt may preserve, but it cannot change incorruption into incorruption, all right? It can only preserve. Its usage is to prevent corruption from spreading. And there's a great truth in that with regard to Christians and Christianity as a whole. We are to have a preserving effect on a corrupting society and culture and world. All right? And I'll point out a little bit more about that in a moment. Thirdly, salt irritates. Salt irritates. Have you ever had an open wound and had salt in it? Now, as a teenager, when I had braces, oh, so glad to be out of that stage of life, had braces, those things would always cut the inside of my mouth. And you know what happens when that, when that takes place? You get this sore in there that just constantly irritates, and, and, and it's painful, right? And Dad used to tell me, go get some salt water and go swish it around in your mouth. It's like, okay, I'll go try that. The first time I ever did that, I regretted doing that. Why? Because salt in an open wound irritates. It's painful. If you've got a cut on your leg or your arm or some kind of open wound in your body, you jump in the ocean, the ocean's filled with what? Salt, right? You immediately feel where that open wound is. It's, it's painful, okay? So salt irritates. And, and so in a world that is really an open wound of sin, what do we as Christians do to the world? We have somewhat of an irritating effect. When we stand up for truth and we speak truth about sin and righteousness and God's judgment and the gospel, the world naturally doesn't like it. It irritates them. It's, it's like salt in an open wound. So salt has an irritating effect. But not only that, salt also heals. Salt has a healing effect. Now, the reason Dad would tell me to go swish around salt water was not to make me just, hey, him get a good laugh about my pain of the salt and open wound. There's an end goal there. Salt has a healing effect. And the salt in the water would bring about healing on those sores and on any open wound that's on your body. And, and so we as God's people, we in that turn, we have a healing effect on the world in the sense that we bring truth to the world that can bring about salvation and healing for the lives of people who are dying in their sins. So there's, there's the influence of salt. But what about the light? He says, you're the light of the world. How does light influence? What's the influence of light? Well, two quick things about light. Light gives clarity. What would we be able to see without light? Imagine there's no more sun, no more moon. There's no lights in here. We'd just be in a world of darkness. I mean, you can look at Genesis 1, 1 and 2, and you see that the world was dark. There was no dark, right? There was no light. It was complete darkness, okay, until God created light. And so light gives clarity. Now, believers, as the light of the world, they give spiritual light to a dark world because they are a reflection of the true light of the world. Who is the light of the world, in essence? Jesus Christ, isn't it? Now, here's what Jesus said, applying this to himself, but also to his people in John 8, 12. He says this, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the only reason that Christians can be the light of the world is firstly because Jesus is the light of the world, the one who has saved us, and he's made us in, in, into that same uh, light. So light gives clarity. Light also gives caution. 
Light shows us not only what's right, but it also warns us of what we need to avoid, what kind of danger there might be. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 119, in verse number 105, he says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, you understand, in ancient days, they didn't have these flashlights with all these big lumens that would light up, light up a good space, right? So if you're walking at night, you've got this little lamp with a little fire inside of it, and you're walking. And guess what you're doing in the dark? You're taking it one step at a time, basically, or a few steps at a time. And so it's shining light on the steps ahead of you so you can see what's there, and you can see if you're going to trip over something or, or if there's something to avoid. Now, just by way of illustration, usually in the middle of the night, if I need to get up to check on the kids or use the restroom or whatever, you know, it's dark in the house. There's no lights on, usually. But I know the way around my house, really without any light. I can, you know, navigate the rooms and, and such. But what I can't always see is the toy that was laying there on the ground or the laundry basket that's in the hallway, that, the place that you walk to get to the other places, right? And how many times have I, have I yelled out, ouch, at 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. or whatever, or, you know, whatever, and, and sometimes I'll say, why'd she leave that laundry basket there? Why'd that kid leave that toy there, that, you know? And, and so walking in the dark, you're prone to stumble because you don't see it, right? Even though you think you know your way where you're going, you don't see what's directly in front of you as you're walking, especially when you're half asleep, right? I mean, that's, that just makes it all worse. But the point is, is that light, it gives caution to dangers, and it gives clarity to truth and what we need. So we see the worth of salt and light. And Jesus says, you are these things as Christians. You are these things. We're a transformed people. We're a valuable people. We're an influential people. Now, we understand our worth as Christians and how God wants to use us. But why? Well, this has kind of come out already, but we'll look at it a little further right here. Number two tonight, we see our world of corruption. We see our world of corruption. And this is essentially why God has said, you are salt and you are light, and why we're needed in this world. Notice with me these two aspects that apply to both of these commodities. The world naturally decays. The world naturally decays. See, why would Jesus use such a picture of salt to describe the world? What did Jesus see in his day that gave him this Sermon on the Mount? Here's one quote from G. Campbell Morgan that I thought was fitting, and I'll read it to you. He says, Jesus, looking out over the multitudes of his day, saw the corruption and the disintegration of life at every point. He saw its spoilation, and because of his love of the multitudes, he knew the thing they needed most was salt in order that corruption would be arrested. He saw them wrapped in gloom, sitting in darkness, groping amidst fogs and mists, and he knew that they needed, above all else, light. So he applies that to salt and light. But when you think about the decay, decay is easily seen today just by looking at the Bible and the world around us, right? The Bible teaches us about the human heart, which really is the root to all the decay that we see in our world, right? It's about sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet says... The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's the condition of the human heart. It's naturally that way. It is deceitful above all sins, above all things and desperately sick, or some translations render that as wicked. Who can understand it? You see, the world decays naturally because it has an internal disease that's called sin, right? 
And, and with sin comes death, and with death comes decay. It's all intertwined together. Sin has brought death to humanity and this world, which is seen in the spiritual decay of sinners. Paul said to Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3.13, he said, Well, evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Talking about the evil and decay and corruption. Now, Timothy would experience that in his own day and time, and by all means, we see it happen in any generation of time. We see this. Just so you take a look at our own nation, the decay of our own society and culture. Have we not seen a, a difference just even with the last 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, our own, our own country? We think about the murder of, of millions of babies in the womb that our country is accountable for through abortion. We think about right now the blatant flaunting of, of the homosexuality uh, agenda and the LGBTQ movement. We think about the normalization of pornography that we see in our culture, the lack of justice in society. It's all through our own nation. We see it, right? Beyond our own country, we see evil dictators ruling in dark nations. We see genocide committed by evil men throughout history. We see hatred of certain nations against other nations. This is all due to the sin that is in the heart of man, and it produces decay within the culture and in societies. So here's what we find with this. Christians as salt have a restraining effect upon the decay and corruption in the world. What do you mean? Think about this. What if, or how horrifying would it be, if there was no believers in the world, if there was no churches, no scripture, no, no people standing for truth and standing for righteousness, promoting what is right according to the law and standard of God? What if evil had its full way in the world without any restraint? That would be a dark day, a decaying day in which we have never seen before. Probably the closest we've seen we've seen to that would have been the days of Noah when there was only eight people who were saved out of the world, right? The rest perished. How evil and corrupted that was. But you just imagine that. Because of the wicked decay, the world desperately needs the salt of believers. But notice with me, letter B, not only is the world naturally decaying because of sin, the world also is naturally dark, spiritually dark. It's naturally dark. What's darkness do? Darkness prevents one from seeing clearly. It's exactly what it does. We've already touched on that a little bit. But here's what Proverbs said. Proverbs 4 and verse 19. He says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. And notice this. They do not know over what they stumble. That's back to stumbling in the dark, like the illustration I used, right? They do not know over what they stumble. They're wandering in darkness, and so they're stumbling over all these things. They don't even realize it, right? You see, our world is darkened so terribly spiritually that man thinks that he's advancing because of his intellect and his technology and all of his reason and philosophy, right? When actually he is decreasing morally in his applications and worldview. To give you one illustration here, there was a college professor who once told his class that marriage was on the decline because man was evolving to a higher level. Marriage was something that man needed only at the lower stages of evolutionary development. 
Now that man has ascended further up the evolutionary scale, marriage, listen to this, marriage is falling off like his tail did millions of years ago. But the declining number of healthy and happy marriages is not an indication of the advancement of evolution of man. It's a symptom of the moral and spiritual decay of society. I mean, that, that's, that shows you how dumb the evolutionary theory is, how spiritually dark it is, that one would say that marriages are in decline because we're evolving to a higher level. Baloney, right? My favorite Greek word. Baloney for that. It's not. All of it is, is, is flowing from the decay of sin and the darkness of sin that reveals the darkness of this world, how, how they don't see clearly the reason for what happens in this world. Now, Paul addresses this issue a little bit, and I'll just read a brief passage here in Romans chapter number 1. Let's, let's go there and see this together. I encourage you to read all of Romans 1, and you'll see, you'll see a bigger picture of man's sinfulness especially in the latter half of the chapter. But Romans 1, and we just see a little bit here, of man's rebellion against God and failure to see reality. You notice in Romans 1, verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You read on through the rest of this passage, and you'll see how God gives them up to their own sinful lust, to follow after their own darkened heart. But what do you find in this text? You find man's willful rebellion and rejection of the plain evidence of the one true God who created the world in which they live. And so God says they're without excuse. They're without excuse because of this. And so, that's what Paul addresses. Because of their depravity and their spiritual darkness that covers them, they behave the way they do. Now, our dark world really seeks to do opposite of what is truth and proclaims the opposite of what is truth. The prophet Isaiah wrote it this way. Isaiah 5 verse 20, about those even in his day. You remember Israel had seasons where they went into deep darkness we could apply it today even, too, right? Isaiah 5.20, he says, Woe to those that call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Does that look familiar at all for our own culture? It, it's obvious around us, right? People say that evil is good. Homosexuality and the LGBTQ, oh, this is good. We should just be, you should, this, is how, this is okay to be this way. No, God says it's not. Same thing for abortion. Same thing for all the other evil things we see in our culture and society. Evil is put for good and good is put for evil. We're the crazies who are, have a bad agenda for preaching righteousness and what is true in God's eyes. You see, Satan has, in effect, blinded people from the truth. And this, is, this ties into our depravity from the fall, but he continues in the effect of blindness through various forms of deception. In 
2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 through 4, he says this. Paul says, even if our, And even if our gospel is veiled or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, those who are lost, those who aren't saved. In their case, the God of this world, little g, meaning Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you see how the devil works in the world. He has a blinding mission. And so the world naturally is in blindness, and he seeks to keep them in their blindness so that they don't see the gospel. And what do we find in effect with this? If you read through that passage... Only the power of God in the gospel can enlighten the mind and heart to see the truth, to see the truth of who they are and what sin actually is and who Christ is. Only by God's grace, through the gospel, will any sinner come to see clearly the truth and be saved. And so with darkness permeating this world and decay permeating this world, guess what the world needs? It needs salt and it needs light. And that brings us to number three. We see the more of the applicational aspect here for us. We see our work of consecration. We see our work of consecration. Understand that consecration begins with God. It is of His power. It is of Him. Okay? Our sanctification is of Him. But there is a element in which application we are to apply to our life. So notice this in our, in our, in our text. We just break it down into the salt and light again. The first thing I want you to see is the savor of salt in the Christian. What is the savor of salt? If I could describe it in a plain way, I would say it is our Christian character of who we are in Christ. Our Christian character in Christ. You see, we are responsible to cultivate Christian character that is salty or has the savor of salt to this world. Now, look at, look at what Jesus says in our text. He says that salt can lose its savor, and therefore it is good for nothing. You know, when you mix salt with other minerals, you really dampen its effect, don't you? You dampen the effect that it is supposed to give, whether it's taste or preservation or what have you. And Likewise, if we as Christians are mixed in with the world and we decide, you know what, it's not really that big a deal in how we live and how our character is, we're not going to really have much influence, will we? That's going to affect our Christian influence. That's what it does. And so there's a great application here that, that Paul brings out in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world, patterned after, become mixed in with this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, to be conformed is to be patterned after. It's basically just, I'll just kind of, go along with the way the world thinks, the way the world lives, the way the world does things. The Christian is to be distinctly different. And by that, being distinctly different, they have a powerful influence. A powerful influence. I want to point this out further from what Jesus prays to the Father in John 17. I want you to turn to this passage. I want you to see this for yourself. Because for us to have the greatest impact in being the salt of the earth, that's what we are, we are to continue in our ongoing sanctification in Christ. And I think there's an application here. We see a bigger picture in Christ's prayer. In John 17, and verse 15 through 19, remember that in this text, Jesus is going to the cross soon, just hours away from going to the cross. 
and he's praying to the Father, an intercessory prayer on behalf of his people. And he says in verse number 15, this is in the midst of his prayer, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. There's some things that stick out to me here. Let me ask you this. When you got saved, when you were born again, why weren't you just taken on to heaven the moment you were born again? Wouldn't that have been nice, right? Just go straight on to heaven. Why weren't you just taken out of the world? Because we are not meant to leave this world. We are meant to affect this world. We are meant to affect this world. You notice what Jesus says. He prays to God the Father, I pray not that you take them out of the world. He's praying, I don't want you to take them out of the world, but instead that He keep them or protect them from the evil one. There you have it. Jesus desires His disciples' presence in the world and protection in the world. Why? Look at verse 18. He says, As you sent me into the world, talking to the Father, so I have sent them into the world. There's a mission given to the disciples or that first church, which is then transferred really to all of the church. Christ's disciples had a mission in the world, and so do all Christians. And that mission is to permeate the world as salt permeates what it is used on through the Great Commission, through the Gospel, through what God has called us to be and to do. So you think about salt. It's uniquely different. But salt is directly in contact with the food, right? It's touching the food. In the same way, we're in the world. We're among the world. But what's Jesus say about His disciples? They're in the world, but they're not of the world. There's a difference. They're in the world, but they're not of the world. So because you're in Christ, you're not of this world anymore. You're of heaven. You're of Him. You're born of God. You're different. And so you're in the world, but you're not of the world. That's a major distinction we have to see. But notice what Jesus prays for them. He's praying for their sanctification. You know what sanctification is? It means you're set apart, being set apart and consecrated in your life as a Christian. And notice what he says here. He says in verse 17, Sanctify them, how? Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. What is it that works in us to bring about further sanctification in our life? It's the Word of the living God in connection with the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. That's the great picture we see here. And so our saltiness in this world has much to do with our Christian character and growing in Christ and being the Christian that we're called to be in this world. And as a Christian, living out the biblical Christian life, we will have a saltiness in the world in which we live, making an influence, having an influence. That brings me to letter B. We see the shine of light from the Christian. The shine of light from the Christian. So what is the shining of the light? Well, I would say that the, Christ, that the shining of the light is your Christian conduct. The salt is your character. It's who you are. The light is what comes from that character. It's your conduct. It's your works. 
You notice he gives an example in verse 14 and 15 of how light is not to be hidden. He says, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. That's just a plain reality, right? If you see a city on a hill, the lights are on, can't hide it. He gives some other examples that could, could be hidden. He says, people do not light a lamp and put it under a basket. See, when people light a lamp, they put it where it will give light in all the house, is what he says. And so this shine of the light, it could be hidden in those kinds of illustrations, but it shouldn't be. I think this is interesting. A basket here, it was used by merchants and farmers in their labor. Suggests the world of labor. Some people can be too busy to let their light shine. If you look at Luke's account, Luke 8, 16, he uses the term of hiding it under a bed. <laughs> hiding it under a bed, that's another way you could hide light. So putting our light under a bed, it, it suggests the world of leisure. Some people can be too lazy to shine their light. So with this example, Jesus says in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others, okay? We're going to let our light shine. How do we let our light shine? Jesus gives us the answer. Notice what he says. So that they may see your what? Good works. So that they may see your good works. You see, it is by our good works as Christians that we shine forth the light of Christ. And understand... It is only as a Christian that you can have such a thing as good works. It is only because God has called us and converted us by His grace that good works are now part of our life because they come from Him. And indeed, good works in Christ, they are fruit of our inward conversion. They are evidence of it. Now, Paul said it this way. Remember, we looked at Ephesians 2 for a moment about being saved by grace. Do you notice what he says right after detailing our salvation by grace alone through faith alone? In chapter 2 and verse 10, he says this. He says, for we, Christians, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You notice the order here. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. We aren't... We don't use good works to get in Christ. A lot of people have that reversed. Good works are the byproduct of someone who has inwardly been changed by Christ. This is what the grace of God has done for us. God has made us into something new. And that includes so many applications, but central to this one right here, we're talking about light. He says later in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, he says to them, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And he says, Walk as children of light. Live this way. Live as children of light. So there's the command. We see how to fulfill it. But what's the ultimate purpose here? What's the ultimate purpose of walking as children of light, letting our light shine through good works? What's Jesus say in this text? He says that they... Who's the they? People around us. That they may see your good works. That they may see your good works. That's the direct influence on our immediate audience of people around us in this dark and decaying world. Now here's an example. Philippians 2, 14-16. Look at this. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, 
children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Look at this very easy example. Something as simple as doing all things without grumbling and disputing is a light that shines in the midst of a crooked and dark world. Doing, doing things without grumbling and disputing. Among others, so many great works we could do. Now, here's the ultimate purpose to all this. Why be salt? Why be light in the world? And here's what Jesus says. So that those may see your good works, and ultimately, here's the chief purpose, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we miss this, we miss everything. This is the chief end of man, is the glory of God. The chief purpose for all of creation and redemption is the glory of God. Because God is perfect and completely satisfied in himself. He was perfectly happy long before creation when there was nothing. He didn't need anything. He creates all things for his glory. But not only for his glory, but in his own gladness of saving his people from their sins and making them into the image of Christ. It's the chief purpose to everything. Romans eleven thirty six, Paul says in the climax of that great doxology, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So when we live as light in the world, guess what we're doing? We are showing people and displaying to people the God who called us, the God who converted us, the God who changed us in Christ. Why is that? Because there wasn't any good works in us before that. Everything good about our Christian life flows from the sovereign grace of God and thereby, thereby glorifies Him alone. And so we need to just, we examine our own self in light of this text. Are we the salt and the light that we're supposed to be? Are we living that way? Salt relates to our character, I think. Light relates to our conduct. Salt deals with what a person is. Light deals with what a person does. As Christians, we need to be the salt and light in this decaying and dark world. And by that, we will glorify God. And that is ultimately our end goal and our end purpose. Amen?